Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Growing up in northern Alabama, musician Jason Isbell's grandfather taught him to play music. First, the mandolin, then the guitar, and a love of blues music giving him quite a gift. That gift meant time spent together, a passion, but also it led to a hugely successful career. Using his platform to promote the social and political issues that are important to him, in some ways it feels like Jason Isbell's been paying that gift forward ever since, even venturing into acting, starring in Martin Scorsese's forthcoming Western crime drama. Jason Isbell, it's a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. A weather vane points towards the direction the wind's coming from. It's a very simple, masterful and kind of decorative tool that's been used by humans for thousands of thousands of years. Why did you name your album after Weather Vanes? Well, you know, it lines up with a whole lot of things. I mean, as a parent, uh, sometimes that's about the best you can do is is try to say which direction the wind is coming from. You know, the, the weather vane's not, in and of itself, it's not a predictor. It's something that tells you uh, the wind is coming from the north. It doesn't say the wind is going to the south. So you have to kind of infer uh, what might happen next on your own. And um, I think there's a lot of stuff on this record about being a parent, uh, a lot of different perspectives on that. And also I like the idea of uh, this sort of almost ancient uh, tool, um, you know, being used to, to, to predict the future uh, when you combine it in with your own intuition. I think that lines up pretty well with the themes of a, of a singer-songwriter's album. Yeah, I like the idea that it doesn't tell you what to do. It just gives you information. If you choose to fight against the wind, well, that's entirely your, your business. You, you see yourself as a communicator, and you've said in the past that you feel your lyrics need to have concrete detail. What do you mean by this? Because we talk a lot about the specificity of storytelling, the more detail somehow the more relatable it is, even if you're not from that that county or that region or, or, or even that time. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if you tell somebody, I love you, I mean, after you say it a, a few times, it, it starts to kind of lose its meaning, you know. But if you tell somebody, I, I noticed the way you stirred your tea this morning and I thought that uh, your hands were very beautiful, well, that person's going to think uh, that I feel loved, you know, and, and I feel it in a way that's not vague and not broad. I know that that is a very specific type of love that I'm being admired. And I think that gets the emotion across in a, in a, in a way that's a little bit more personal and feels like it carries a little more import than just telling somebody, I love you. You know, sometimes when we say something as vague as I love you, we're, we're saying it more for ourselves and more for the, than we are for the, for the person that we're speaking to. And these details, um, they, they show you sometimes exactly how you're feeling those feelings, what particular brand of that emotion uh, you're dealing with at the moment. And it also can help the listener to visualize where we are, because in a song, we don't have a lot of time. You know, we've got three or four minutes, maybe six or seven, if we're feeling uh, a, a little bit crazy. You know, there's a couple of those songs on this record. But for the most part, you get three or four minutes to tell somebody a story. And you can you can put one good solid detail in there that will convey 
uh, a whole lot where, where you can save yourself a whole lot of time and a whole lot of words. Yeah, it's funny because the people that argue against specificity in songs, the songwriters that say you've got to leave something open to uh, audience interpretation, I suppose disagree. They say, well, you've got to let the audience imprint themselves on the lyrics. How do you sort of respond to them? I don't know. I've never heard much from them, to tell you the truth. I mean, pop songs need to be vague, I think. If you're you're specifically writing something that that you know is going to appeal to the widest possible audience um you know but it's like a a bullet versus a shotgun shell i mean if i want to if i want to injure a a whole bunch of birds i'm going to shoot with the broadest smallest shot possible but if i want to kill one bird i'm going to use a a bullet and and i'm going to aim very carefully you know and i think sometimes when i'm writing these songs it's more important to me to make the listener feel like I know a secret about them. I know something about them that I shouldn't know Um, because I'm more into the quality of the connection than the quantity of it. I think that if you get a a small room full of people who really very closely connect with the songs that you're singing, to me, that's, that's more satisfying than an arena full of people who, you know, have heard all those words before. Yeah, one bullet close to the heart. It makes sense. Weather Veins is your ninth studio album. Your song, King of Oklahoma, describes a man who is in a bit of a bad way, stealing copper to sell in order to feed his addiction. The song doesn't come across as sort of judgmental, but I'm curious about how this person got to this point. Why is it important for you to examine his half of this story? Well, I think that I think the details are in there. You know, I think you can you can tell enough about him if you look very closely. What I do sometimes if I'm trying to get more context in a song is I'll look at every little specific choice that the songwriter made and um, I'll decide, you know, try to figure out why they decided to to use that specific word, because they could have used any word in the language uh, at that point. And that's the one they went with. So each, I think each little tiny article and, and preposition and noun and adjective, they're all there for a very specific purpose. Um, and I feel like it's revealed to the listener, if you're a close listener in that song, that some of the circumstances are beyond this man's control. And some of his motivations have been pure and um, not necessarily selfish motivations, but still it has led him down a path of, of self-destruction or of just general destruction. It, it could be argued that he didn't even do this to himself. You know, uh, it's something that is of great interest to me is um, the line where we begin to become responsible uh, for the situation that we're in, because it's a very, it's a very thin line and it's, and it's very blurry. You know, it's not, you can't look, the word deserve to me doesn't really mean anything because it's so hard to pin down what we deserve you know um uh and there's a small line separating me from a lot of the people that i grew up with in alabama who have a whole bunch of problems or they're in prison or they're dead or you know they they have a very different type of life i'm extremely grateful for for the way my life has gone Um, and the more grateful i am the more time i spend thinking well why me why did it go this way for me and it didn't go this way for everybody else. And then through that process, through the through the process of gratitude, I, I find myself empathizing more with people who, you know, might not have been in control of all their decisions.
maybe you're getting what you deserve too. And after being grateful hope, and having gratitude, you know, yeah. I hope, man. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I, because if, if this is what I deserve, I must have done something right. Because I really have a, <laughs> I have a nice time riding around playing music and squeezing my brain until these songs come out. That's for sure. <laughs> if you just join me on RN Drive, Jason Isbell is my guest. We're talking about his new album, Weather Veins. You're also in Martin Scorsese's epic Western crime drama, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's not your first foray into acting, but it is a more substantial role than the last. Uh, what's your approach to this sort of role and working with someone uh, you know, as luminary as Martin Scorsese. You know, what I try to do is go in completely terrified and have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> and then just ask everybody, how the hell do I do this? What am I supposed to say here? Like, how do I, how do I act? I, and that's literally what I did. Like I memorized all the lines. I did a whole bunch of work studying the the history of the Osage people in, in Oklahoma and, and what happened to them. Uh, in the 1920s. And um, then I went in thinking, I don't know anything about this. And um, I'm just going to do what I'm told. And if I don't know how to do that, I'm going to ask somebody. And I got really lucky because everybody on that set, you know, from uh, the hair and makeup folks all the way up to the assistant directors and cinematographer, they were all really, really, really good at their job. And none of them were hampered by ego and they were just willing to help. You know, they just said, okay, we'll try this, you know, or let's think about this or let's look at it this way. And it was an incredible experience for me because I I was way out of my element. You know, I mean, I've been in a couple of things before, but mostly just standing around in the background because it was a show that I liked or something. This was my first real role. And uh, yeah, I was scared to death, man. I I was out there with Leonardo (laughs) DiCaprio and, Robert De Niro and, and Lily Gladstone and all these like incredible actors. And, and I was just like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do, but if you just get, you know, if you get past that, uh, that part of you that's embarrassed and just tell everybody, you know, I, I have no idea how to do this. Would y'all please help me? Most of the time people will help you and, and they will, they will like that about you. They'll be nice to you. Cause they're like, this guy is not trying to take our job. He's just trying to help out. <laughs> Uh, that is advice to live by. Be terrified and ask for help. It's actually not your yeah. only brush with filming recently. Your HBO documentary, Running With Our Eyes Closed, really reveals your relationship with your wife uh, as well as your music. Mm-hmm. What were you hoping to show people I- in that work? You know, I mean, when we started it, I thought that we were going to be showing people what it's like to make a record in the studio and, and everything was going to go great. And then it got complicated as we went along, you know, and Amanda and I had some trouble and, and then the, the, the world sort of shut down and we had to figure out how to run these movie cameras and film ourselves and just all kinds of craziness. Um, uh, so it was difficult, but throughout the process, I sort of, I kept reminding myself that if, if you're honest and, and you do your best job, uh, just being a person while these cameras are rolling, then it's going to wind up being something that's worth making and something that connects with people. And I think, I think that's what happened. You know, I think Sam Jones did a great job with it. And I think the, the, the rest of us were just trying to be as honest as we could possibly be. And, uh, that way, you know, if somebody sees it, like we were talking about earlier, they might not, they might not feel so alone. Yeah, I really did get that sense of how much of a daily battle being sober is for you. You're 11 years sober now. 
what things have not drinking allowed you to do that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to do before? Well, survive, uh, for starters, you know, I don't know that I would still be alive if, uh, I've been, if I stayed in active addiction, but I certainly wouldn't have the energy and the focus on my work that I have. And, and I wouldn't be as good a father or a husband or anything else, you know, and, and they'll tell you in AA, uh, uh, you know, that you really have to get up every day and, and make staying sober your first priority. And I believe that to be true, because I think that if, if you can do that, then that will give you the ability to deal with, first of all, deal with the reasons why you became an addict in the first place. And then uh, secondarily, you know, it'll help you be an effective person and, and just, just be there for the people that you care about. You are well known for supporting certain public health policies, political and social causes. You changed your tour venues to make sure they were vaccination compliant. You, you regularly promote and tour with artists of colour. You created a whole album around the state of Georgia turning blue for last election. Do you ever find it difficult to reconcile your views with Southern fans who might expect different views from you? I mean, if they're still expecting different from me at this point, they haven't been paying much attention because, you know, the drive-by truckers were that way when I was in that band and, and they've been that way this whole time. I think there's just no way that I could enjoy my life and uh, uh, my time on this earth um, if I wasn't speaking my mind and trying sometimes to speak up for people who don't have their own voice in the public sphere. Um and, you know, in America, I think it's, it's this way in a lot of places, but we, we have a bad habit of of uh, um, uh, not listening to the people who really need to be heard the most. And I think sometimes if you're, you know, a straight white man like me and you've had a pretty fortunate life and been able to make something of yourself and gather yourself an audience, I think you have a responsibility to sort of speak on behalf of people who might not have been afforded those opportunities. It, it really, I just wouldn't be able to sleep at night, you know, and, and, and if you can't sleep, uh, you can't sing. In an interview recently, you were talking about what it means to be a Southern man and that you were taught a very specific set of values around masculinity and survival, which kind of don't work in today's context. Do you find you need to unlearn some of these skills? You know, you ask yourself a lot of questions and, um, I find myself thinking, well, what is it that that makes this particular job my role? You know, why why really fundamentally um, should I be the breadwinner while my wife is the homemaker, or why should I be um, uh, uh, silent about my emotions and about my feelings and and you know, put on a strong face when, when in reality, the way that I'm feeling is affecting everybody around me. I just try to keep asking myself those questions. Like, what's it going to hurt if I just tell people how I feel? Or if I go to therapy and, and I'm open about that and I let people know that. And what's it going to hurt if rather than stay in my lane uh, in the traditional masculine sense, what if I just put out whatever fires I see that need to be put out, uh, whether it's you know, doing the laundry or doing the dishes or making money or whatever, you know, I, I think, I think really at the root of all of uh, the differences between men and women and, and the root of this idea of masculinity, you know, there's a whole lot of nonsense that we just sort of made up. Um, 
somewhere along the line of civilization. And if you really start sort of picking those things apart, they stop making sense. And everybody's life gets easier if, uh, you know, the man or the woman or whoever, if we're just willing to do whatever needs to be done. You know, I saw this really good thing on Twitter uh, a couple of years ago when everybody was talking about the guns and, and you know, there had been another school shooting and and somebody came on and and, and it, it was a, a lady. I don't remember who she was, but uh, but I saved it because it's just a really good thread. But it's like a conversation that a man is having with God about how he wants to protect his family. He needs a weapon to be able to protect his family. And God says to the man, you know, if you really want to protect your family, you're going to have to do a whole lot of laundry, you know, because uh, <laughs> when the kids when the kids close, they get dirty. The kids get bacteria. They bring home germs. If you're really interested in protecting your family, I'm going to need you to, to wash a whole bunch of clothes. And, <laughs> and, you know, and the guy keeps keeps protesting and saying, well, but I'm thinking more along the lines of. If somebody breaks in and 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 God says, "Yeah, that's not going to happen." What's really going to happen is your kid's going to get sick from some sort of foodborne illness. So I'm going to need you to go do the dishes and, you know, regularly do the dishes. And and it made so much sense to me because it's like if what you really truly want is for your family to be healthy and happy and safe, then your job is to do whatever the hell you need to do to make that happen. And and that doesn't mean fantasizing about some kind of masculine dream, you know, where you're where you're dressed up like a military guy and picking people off. That means doing the dishes and doing the laundry and 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 taking care of anything that needs to be taken care of, whether you're a man or not, you know. That is so true. Yeah. Soap suds, not shotguns. I think we get along a lot yeah. better if a lot of men realize that. Uh, well, Jason Isbell, you are the very epitome of a very Southern, but very modern man. I do want to play Death Wish. It's the first song off this album. Can you just tell me a little bit about the story behind this song? Yeah. And this one was fun to write, you know, because it's kind of, it's it doesn't have a, a, a traditional uh, arrangement where you have verses and choruses and a bridge and all that. It's just sort of uh, two sections that repeat and build and build to the end of the song. And I wanted to create some tension and some anxiety in there because it is about um, being in love with somebody, being close to somebody who uh, who is having a hard time emotionally. And you're trying to be there to support them without uh, uh, placing your own will uh, on them. So it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting balance. It's like, how can I help you without, without getting in your way? Yeah. Jason Isbell's album with the 400 unit is Weather Veins. It's out now. Killers of the Flower Moon will be released later this year. Jason Isbell, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.